Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series from canvas to screen on select Saturdays in March. Enjoy a film that captures the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art, including Metropolis, Days of Heaven, and Marie Antoinette at NortonSimon.org. Come see the new quiz show, Go Fact Yourself, with special guests Andy Richter and Fresh Air's Tanya Mosley. It's March 23rd at the Crawford. Get your tickets at las.com slash events. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us today. We have a jam-packed, fascinating program for you. Another one of the candidates for L.A. County District Attorney, Deputy D.A. Eric Sadal, will be joining us in just a few minutes as we're going to be bringing through our studios all of the candidates for L.A. County District Attorney, at least all of those willing to come on the program and to talk about it. And a reminder, this evening there is a debate of those candidates for L.A. County D.A. We'll be carrying it for you live at 6 o'clock. The debate, uh, sponsored by Los Angeles Magazine, will have the candidates as they go back and forth starting at 6 o'clock right here this evening on L.A.S. 89.3. But as for Air Talk, we're giving you in-depth time with each of the 12 candidates uh, who agreed to come in and talk about their candidacy. We begin today's program, though, with the news that the largest independent bookstore in Southern California, Romans in Pasadena, is up for sale. And not just the flagship Romans uh, on Colorado Boulevard, but the Romans in Hastings Ranch in East Pasadena and Book Soup on the Sunset Strip. Joining us to talk about the reasons for the sale, the chairman and majority shareholder of Romans, Joel Sheldon. Joel, so good to have you with us today. Well, thank you, Larry. Thank you for asking me to be on. You've been associated with this store for years, and it goes back, I know, to your great-grandfather. This could not have been an easy decision for you and your fellow family members to make. What's led you to this decision? Well, you're absolutely right about that. We are 130 years old, and I've been through a couple of transitions myself. Uh, the real reason is um, I will be 80 in a couple of months, and I recognize that I don't have the energy and the commitment that it requires to keep Bromans current, growing, with a, with a vision of all the new things and opportunities that are opening up. They're challenges, but those challenges bring opportunities. Uh, the second is that I believe that the bookstore, the institution itself, deserves that opportunity. I should not drag it down as I age, let me put it that way. And third, I, we do have a commitment to the community and, and even Southern California, as you know. Those, those are the three honest reasons uh, that we're doing it. There are many reasons why your customers are so loyal. I know you do 400-some events a year, from kids' events to author signings and, and speaking engagements at the store. 
your your employees are known for hand selling where they make recommendations and help uh, buyers go through and and find a book that's really best suited for them or a gift for someone close to them uh, you've got the the coffee shop that's there on site for people to gather it's just become a community place musical performances as well but I would I would offer on top of all those things that draw people in the doors is a tremendous sense of loyalty to the store. And we saw that um, back uh, a few years ago when Romans was having a difficult time with sales and people flocked to the store to make purchases, to show their support. And I wonder, Joel, if you can speak to that, that thing that maybe is less quantifiable that it, that connects people to Romans, but that has been so important to your business model. That's a very good question because that, that culture at Romans has been there for all those 130 years. And I certainly didn't know Mr. Roman, but it's clear to me, he, I think, owned the store for about 14 years, maybe a little bit longer, that it started with him. And fortunately, we're able to find people who want to work with Romans who have the same innate feeling of respect, uh, treating people well, loving books. Uh, and before I go much further, I, I, I want to thank, I really want to thank our employees, our customer base. And I have to say this, even LAF, you know, over the years, You've done a wonderful job for the communities in uh, Southern California. So I just want to get those thank yous in early. But that those thank yous are also part of that culture I'm talking about. You know, thank you is a very important word. Uh, even when things aren't going so well, the pandemic, as you mentioned, was very, very difficult. Very. And the customers were great when, when we asked for their support. Just great. Well, it was it was a beautiful thing to see, and and um, one of the things you have at Romans is Romans gives gives back where people when they make a purchase can designate a charity to get um, a, a small sum that goes to support that. We are one of the nonprofit entities. Many are included that customers can choose from, and we of course appreciate being a, a part of that. Joel, is there an ideal buyer that you can think of? I mean, this is a this is a very difficult uh, thing to find someone who's going to be aligned with the business acumen to make this work financially, but also fully aligned with the broad mission of Romans. Uh, well, we're going to find out. Um, we do look at maybe a local individual with, with business skills and probably some wealth that he they that family has built. Um, we look uh, for a group of like individuals that are willing to invest in the future of Romans and, and take it to the next step themselves. Um, and we are, you know, this is going to be, uh, at least in the book industry, it, it'll be a national story and it'll get back east. And there are some publishers have stepped up actually and purchased bookstores. I'm I'm not sure that that will happen. Um, are you okay with that? Because I know you don't you don't want to see a big chain purchase. I I understand that because you don't want Romans to lose the uniqueness it's got. Would you be okay with a publishing house purchasing it? It all depends. 
that's that's what negotiations are about and who the people are and uh, how they would uh, line up with our values. You're absolutely right. We're looking for the people with the right values. And um, I, I can't answer some of those questions. It, it may come from a strange place. I don't know. Um, I was also wondering, Joel, about nonprofits. I mean, as as you know, recently, Angel City Press, the highly regarded local publisher, uh, they published my book uh, when it came out. Um, mm-hmm. uh, they, uh, Patty and Scott, have have um, uh, given that to the L.A. Public Library, where, where it'll be the first of its kind public library with a book imprint. It'll continue to publish and to service the catalog. Is a nonprofit entity a possibility here? Uh, it, you know, I'm going to say it depends a lot because it does, it does depend. Um, it depends on the structure and, and the actual purchase and sale exchange. Uh, there are bookstores that are going into nonprofit models. I think for a future owner, that's a possibility that they might want to pursue. But the, 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 that's a very good reason why I think it's time for me to bow out. I know about those things. But I, I don't want to pursue them personally. You know, uh, I think a nonprofit uh, structure, if it can be structured correctly and uh, people understand it and stuff like that, is, is, is a wonderful model. But I think it's hard in combining private business and nonprofits, as we, as we know. Uh, but well, and the challenge is it's... It's such a competitive business you're in, and you're competing primarily with online sales of books uh, and ebooks. So you, 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 whoever is is going to take this on has to be someone with the kinds of competitive business skills to be able to make sure that it can continue to sustain itself financially. So I see where a nonprofit that could be a challenge because you're you're asking it to have the kind of entrepreneurial skills and nimble that you've been able to provide at Vromans. And, you know, most nonprofits aren't wired to do that. You're right. That was a better answer to your question. <laughs> I didn't mean that. Absolutely right. And, and I even thought while you were talking, I'm not, I don't want to say I'm not sure about the business skills. You can surround yourself with advisors. What you really need is commitment, passion, energy, a willing willingness to really dive in and learn the business. There, there are a lot of resources for learning business today that weren't around 50 years ago, including in the book industry. They have a whole educational program. So, uh, yes, we need somebody who has some business experience, but I, the, oh, there are underlying values that that we're also looking for. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, there's a lot there. I know one of the things is you want all the employees to be able to continue, according to Kevin Smith's mm-hmm. Pastina Star News Story. You've got 123 employees at the flagship, mm-hmm. 13 in Hastings Ranch, and 18 at Book Soup. Mm-hmm. And um, would that be a deal breaker for you if someone said, "Look, you know, I understand you do hand selling, and you know, you you have enough employees to really quickly respond to your customers' needs, but we we mm-hmm. can't afford to pay that." many salaries would would that be a deal killer for you well that's a tough question um again i can't really 
to answer it until I know who the other person is and what their values are and where they're going with it. Sometimes businesses, and I've done this, I had to do this when I transitioned into a leadership stewardship position from my father and uncles. Uh, You had to trim the business to let it grow. It's like a a bush and a garden and a rose bush. Um, So those are difficult decisions sometimes in difficult circumstances, either pandemic-like circumstances or, and by the way, we didn't trim anybody during that period of time, but, uh, or or these transitions. Um, So again, I can't really say until I, get into discussions with people. And there's also a realism about this. You have to have some sense of reality. I have to have it to what's possible and what's not possible. And one of the things people don't know is that I have responsibilities to other people. And some of those people are family members. Uh, But what I want to say, they have their own challenges. That's a long story. I, I, I could talk about family business for a long time. Well, I'm sure. And it's always complicated when you have different family members who are stakeholders um, yeah. without, without um, you know, violating confidences within your family. Is it, is it fair to say that this has been a stressful time among family because of what the store represents, going through this transition not being easy? Uh, that has not been represented to me, and I've talked to everybody, um, but that doesn't mean there isn't stress. Um, they're behind this movement. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's absolutely true. If one, one trust uh, for a, I'll call her a cousin, really a second cousin. And uh, she really needs support, okay? And that trustee has been wonderful and is uh, so far fully supportive. But even those people have, have to see and close the deal. And that's what I mean about being realistic. We, as a board of directors, and I, as the chairman and majority owner, have responsibilities to, I guess there are four segments of constituents. Customers, employees, vendors, and owners, and I, I, you know, you've got responsibility to all those people. Um, makes it makes it tough. Yeah, makes it a challenge. Are, is there a consultant that you're working with? I mean, what your business is now such a unique one. Is there even someone to work with you on this to identify a buyer who would totally get what you're looking for and have the knowledge base to identify potential buyers? Well, interesting. We, we made that decision, and we chose a board member and an owner who's been with us for 40 years, and I brought in the business under these same circumstances because I had no real background in business and economics and finance, but I was thrust into a transition that nobody expected. And this individual has been with us as a director for all those years, and it was a turnaround guy and helped Bromas get through a very, very difficult period in the early 80s. And so we chose, he's, he's done this kind of thing before, so I chose that we would go with the internal person who knows all this stuff after 40 years. I think he loves Bromas more than I do. 
and he, he knows we meet four times a year. I mean, as a board of directors, I mean, the information has been widely shared to uh, decision makers. And so I thought it was best to go with somebody who I trusted and who um, really understood the business in depth. And Joel, that's, that's what we're doing. That's great. You have someone in-house to, to lead the process. And I appreciate you talking about what's going on behind the scenes because, as you know, so many of your customers feel a, a tremendous emotional connection to Romans and care about it as an institution in the community. So to hear what you're experiencing, the complexity involved of putting Romans up for sale, the conditions of sale you're looking for to try and assure the culture and the services of Romans continue under new ownership, all of this, I think, is very valuable for for your customers, people in your Romans community to have a sense of what's what's involved. Thank you for joining us and talking so openly about it. I really appreciate it. And uh, Joel, also thank you for all that you've done in these decades, making Romans such a, a, a one-of-a-kind place to shop in, to spend time in. You've created something very, very special, and let's hope that the new owners are able to keep what's so special about Romans and also find new ways under new ownership uh, to grow that kind of connection with customers. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. I always love talking with you. Thanks so much. Joel Sheldon, chairman and majority shareholder of Romans Bookstore. Book Soup also is is owned by Romans. Uh, I've known Joel for, gosh, nearly 40 years, I think. He's been at Romans, leading it, I think, 45. It's been in the family for generations. Big news that Romans, the largest independent bookstore in Southern California, is up for sale. Coming up, we continue our series of interviews with candidates for Los Angeles County District Attorney. Today, it's uh, Deputy DA Eric Sedal. We'll be back and talk with him in just a minute. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. It's Air Talk on LA is 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Just want to remind you that we'll have live coverage this evening at 6 o'clock of the LA County District Attorney's Candidates Debate, sponsored by Los Angeles Magazine. We invite you to join us live right here as Nick Roman, on All Things Considered, leads us into that coverage this evening at 6. Here on Air Talk, I'm talking with each of the candidates, total of 12 of them, and including the incumbent DA, George Gascon, uh, talking with them about why they're running, asking them about some of the issues that have been major points of discussion around Gascon's leadership of the district attorney's office. Joining us is a gentleman who's been on Air Talk before. He's a deputy district attorney, prosecutes violent crime. He's the former vice president of uh, the deputy DA's Employee Association. Eric Sadal, thank you for joining us again. We appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. And just so you know, you are my favorite sandwich at Wax Paper. Oh, thank you. 
pretty good, isn't it's it? It's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. I wish I could take credit for having uh, chosen it, but I'm, I'm glad the one they chose. Let's talk about um, your outspokenness, criticism of George Gascone in your position with the DA's association. You've, you've been a frequent critic. You've been on this program criticizing him. What led you to finally decide to run against him? Well, because I believe that I represent a new generation of prosecutors, one that does not want to just turn back the clock 10, 15 years, but also understands that the current uh, project that the DA is engaging in, this current social experiment, is not working, that he is trying to reform the system, but frankly, he has not reformed the system and he's not keeping you safe either. We are seeing that violent crime has generally decreased after this uh, uh, spike we had post-pandemic. What leads you to believe that the reforms that he's enacted aren't working when it comes to the safety of Angelinos? Well, first of all, I think in terms of violent crime, you have to look at the overall trend. And for the past five years, violent crime has been increasing. And more importantly, it's actually been diverging from where the rest of the country is going. So... We can't just look at one year. We have to look at the trend. And again, I'm not saying that he's responsible for that trend, but he's not doing anything to stop that trend. And then when it comes to the issue of reform, well, there really is no reform in the DA's office. George Gascon started off on December the 7th of 2020 when he was first inaugurated as uh, the district attorney with a series of very, very radical reforms. He has backtracked on almost all of those reforms. So when you talk about reform, I'm not sure what reform we're talking about anymore. And that's the reason why the reason for my candidacy is I want to advocate for reform, but reform that is responsible and sustainable and doesn't just change because of the political wins. So let's let's take some concrete examples. He he pledged that he would prosecute law enforcement officers who uh, were uh, seen as engaging in misconduct or shootings that were not legally justified. Uh, we've had more prosecutions under Gascon than under several uh, previous DAs. So that would seem to be an area where he's walked the walk. What's an area where you think he hasn't? Well, let me, let me just push back on that one yeah. because, frankly— uh, we've also never seen judges dismiss uh, cases against police officers at at the preliminary hearing stage, which is basically a stage of you know where there's minimal evidence that's required, and that's happened under this district attorney. We are losing cases where we're prosecuting police officers as well, and even last Friday, the DA claims victory, but yet uh, in a police officer involved shooting case where it resulted of the death of the victim, that person got 30 days of county jail. I want you to think about the last time that a police officer was prosecuted for an on-duty shooting where the person did not die. That person got five years in state prison. So that's not really accurate to say that he's done a great job in terms of holding police officers accountable. What's going wrong then, in your view? Why are these cases being kicked by judges at the preliminary hearing stage, which, as you're saying, would, I mean, that's typically have to show there's a gross lack of evidence for it not to go to trial. So what is this a lack of preparation of deputy DAs? What's going on? The problem is, is he has over-politicized the unit that actually prosecutes police officers. He's put them in with former uh, public defenders who have no prosecutorial experience. He has politicized that department of our office. 
And I think the over-politicization is causing gross filings to occur. And because of that, we're getting these cases dismissed. So it's incompetence in terms of leadership. I want you to think about this. Under prior administrations, the unit that prosecuted police officers generally had the most uh, knowledgeable, experienced prosecutors in the office. In fact, one of my mentors in the office was a guy named John Gilligan. He's the last person to have prosecuted an uh, on-duty shooting before this last case on Friday. He was an extremely experienced prosecutor. Now we have people with almost zero experience in that uh, division of our office, and we're filing for political purposes so that headlines are made, but results are not given. So so it sounds like you're saying these are cases where some of these officers shouldn't even be charged. That's why they're getting tossed in the preliminary hearing. Well, I'm not saying that. That's what the judges are saying. Okay. But, But not that it's incompetence on the part necessarily of the prosecutors, that they're not amassing the evidence available to present to the judges that there isn't the evidence. Well, you have a duty as a prosecutor to file a case that you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the standard that our office uses for its ethical standards. So if you can't prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt, the case should not be filed. And the fact that the cases are being dismissed by a judge when the standard of evidence is, hey, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't, that's pretty that's pretty gross. Let's let's talk about a directive from uh, the current DA telling prosecutors to decline charges involving 13 categories of low-level misdemeanors including driving on a suspended license, drug and paraphernalia possession, public intoxication. Uh, it called for misdemeanor charges only when there were extenuating circumstances like repeat offenses. Uh, uh, the current DA is saying that uh, this leads disproportionately to people people that are living on the streets, dealing with mental illness, or addicted to drugs being prosecuted, and that that's unfair. What's your response to his policy on these misdemeanor quality of life crimes? So I think the problem with the current administration is that they're not engaging in the homeless issue at all. So the unhoused are completely left to their own devices. And that's not responsible government. That's not good government. That's not an effective use of our job. What I would like to do is change that. So what we would do under my administration is we would expand homeless courts. And specifically, we would expand a model that was used by the Redondo Beach City Attorney. He created it. And it meets once a month. It it has all the service providers there present in court ready to give services. And the purpose of homeless court is to graduate people to permanent housing. So it starts off with this. Sometimes... Uh, the unhoused don't have IDs. They get them IDs. They get them mental health services. They get them supportive housing. And eventually they graduate them to a point where they can actually get permanent housing. They assist in terms of expunging their records. In other words, cleaning their records so that people who have a criminal record in terms of minor nonviolent offenses get those cleaned up so that they can actually get the services they need. That's the model that we should be engaging in. Why should that be part of the criminal justice system? Why should that take place in a courtroom? Because there are certain individuals that that's the only way you can get them in more supportive permanent housing. So we should take a role. We should be responsible for that. And part of the other reason why we should be responsible for that is because then we can actively engage to clean up their records so that they can 
get the services they need. If they decline, though, taking the services or even shelter, does that mean that they would be prosecuted for the misdemeanor offense that they committed that brought them into court? Yes, it would be. All right. Uh, We're talking with Eric Sadal, candidate for Los Angeles County District Attorney. What's your position on sentencing enhancements, which uh, the current DA um, has backed away from saying that they lead to mass incarceration? So my view of sentencing enhancements is that they should be used. By the way, the district attorney originally said they're never going to be used. There will be no exception. And in fact, said if there is an exception, that exception will swallow the rule. Now, sentencing enhancements are being used. The difference between my policy and his policy is I'm not going to use it in a racially disparate disparate way. For example, if you're in Compton and you get uh, your family member is murdered, uh, you're not going to get full justice. You're only going to get part of the penal code. But if you get a case that's a high media case, that case is going to get the full weight of the penal code against it. And I'll give you a great example. There was a case out in Benedict Canyon. The the DA's office under George Gascon said, we are going to use special circumstances because of of the loss of life. There were three people that were murdered. There was a similar case in Compton where six people were murdered and they declined to use special circumstances. Why? Because one case had a lot of media attention and the other one did not. That will not happen under my administration. Eric Sidall, L.A. County Deputy D.A., joining us, running for Los Angeles County District Attorney. Uh, I want to get uh, your sense of the death penalty. Nobody's been put to death in California for we're close to 20 years. The governor's placed a moratorium on capital punishment. Um, but George Gascon's the first L.A. prosecutor to prohibit his prosecutors from seeking the death penalty. Are there cases where you would seek it? I would continue George Gascon's policy of not seeking the death penalty, but for different reasons. I do not believe the death penalty is effective. Uh, I have prosecuted a case where the death penalty was imposed back in 1985, again in 2000. It was the murder of Officer Paul Verna from the Los Angeles Police Department. And yet we had to redo that case. And not only that, the co-defendant whose conviction for death had been sustained since 1997 was was still alive and actually testified in that trial. So look, we do not have a death chamber and it does not deter. It is ineffective. There is no reason to have it. It is a waste of resources. It is an extremely expensive piece of paper. And I don't think we should waste resources in our criminal justice system to pursue it. Even the symbolism of it, you think, has limited or no value? I don't think the symbolism has any value because if you're going to have to redo the case 40 years later, I'm not sure how symbolic that is. Should juveniles be prosecuted as adults in extreme cases, particularly heinous behavior? In certain cases, they should be, yes. And and where would you draw that line? I, I actually think that there should be some type of committee that makes a determination as to what uh, juveniles should be prosecuted in the criminal system versus the juvenile system. So it would be on a case-by-case basis. There would be no bright line in terms of a litmus test, uh, but it would be it would be an option that we would use. It would be an option that we would use in a, on a rare occasion, 
but it would still be the, available. So you you see a different. I mean, George Gascon's comment has been brains aren't fully development developed in minors, therefore it, it's not fair to hold them at the same degree of accountability as you would as an adult. Sounds like you you don't see it quite that way. Well, I'm not sure which Gascon are you talking about. Are you talking about version 2020 or are you talking about version 2023? Because he has changed his position on that. His position now in 2023 is almost, is very similar to my position today, and as it has been my whole career. All right. Uh, and uh, finally, your position on Proposition 47, uh, which uh, includes uh, uh, reduced six crimes from felonies to misdemeanors, including simple drug possession, petty theft under $950, writing or forging a bad check under $950, receipt of stolen property, and shoplifting under $950. Would you change that? I think there should be some type of modification as it applies to Prop 47. I wouldn't modify the amount of money. I wouldn't modify the issue as it relates to drugs. But what I do think should happen is if you're a repeat offender, in other words, you're doing this you know, 20 different times, you should be treated differently than the person who's only done this one or two or three times. So there has to be a provision that actually treats repeat offenders differently than first or second time offenders. Eric Sidal, we're out of time. I just want to ask you just a quick 30 second tops statement of voters why they should support your candidacy. Look, right now there is a crisis in the DA's office. We're under, you know, yesterday you guys had a a program about LAPD being understaffed by 10%. We're understaffed by 25%. There's a true existential crisis in the DA's office. You need someone with the internal experience, knows how this office functions has the prosecutorial experience to be able to lead this office to the 21st century to create a modern office that actually represents the new generation of prosecutors who want reform but also want to keep you safe. Thank you very much, Mr. Sidal. Appreciate it. Thank you. Eric Sidal, veteran Los Angeles County Deputy District Attorney who's prosecuted violent crime and candidate for Los Angeles County DA. He'll be one of those taking part in the debate that we'll have for you live at 6 o'clock. The debate sponsored by Los Angeles Magazine. You'll hear it at 6 here on LAist 89.3. Coming up, we're going to be talking about the ways of introducing yourself to a celebrity. If there's someone you're a big fan of, you see that person walking down the street or in a restaurant, do you approach the person? How do you make that decision? And what are some ways to do that that are non-intrusive? We're at 866-893-5722. We'll be back in just 90 seconds. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. We had an experience of, of one of our Air Talk producers 
uh, Lindsay Wright, who is a big fan of the actor Andrew Scott, and he was in our studios to do an interview with us, and Lindsay came down uh, to see if there'd be an opportunity to meet him, and she was is, is very sweet. She's kind of apologetic, like, I never do this, and, you know, I, I, I don't want to be uncool, I don't want rude, and, and uh, I always encourage people to meet our guests, who they like to meet, or whose work they admired, but Lindsay thought it would be good to put it out for listeners who are in that circumstance where you have an opportunity to go up to someone that you see out in the world who you really admire, and how do you handle that? Here in Southern California, that probably happens a fair amount, depending how much you're out and about in the world. So if you're at the supermarket at a restaurant, at an airport locally, um, walking down the street, and you see something, someone that you admire, uh, do you go up to the person? Do you do you say anything to them? How much do you say? For me, it really depends on the circumstance. Um, but I'm so curious. And, you know, people who are public figures have very different responses to it. Uh, generally, when, when I've been out with someone who is a public figure and, and you know, someone comes up, um, it's really pleasant interaction. And, and the people that I know that are well-known seem to accept it very graciously and even appreciate it. But I know sometimes it can go sideways and that there are some people who live a very public life who aren't so hot to have people approach them. I'd like to hear from you. Uh, if you're a public figure, for example, and you have people coming up and introducing themselves to you, how do you feel about that? And uh, if you are someone who has approached someone who is is famous or, or someone uh, maybe not even so famous, but just it, someone you admire that you'd never met before, how do you do that? 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Omri in Beverly Hills, so good to have you with us. Omri, how do you approach this? There, yeah. So I, I, it depends on the famous person. From my experience, if if I see that there's a whole big crowd around, you know, so I'm a little bit introverted, I'll try to just stay away, maybe snap a picture from afar. But if I'm a, you know, there, there are some celebrities that I've I've seen a few times at some restaurants that I that I frequented, and there, you know, once I start to recognize them, and then maybe they start to recognize me, I'll give them a wave or a, or a nod or something like that. But normally, I'll just try to take a selfie from afar that includes them in the frame and and, and call it a day. All right. You know, one of the things about people wanting selfies is, because um, this happens to me, if people recognize my voice or have seen me at one of our live events, and sometimes they want to take a, a, a selfie with me, which is great. I, I appreciate it. Sometimes I'm not really dressed for a photo. <laughs> you know, if I'm, I, I had an experience where I was at Target and I was in the checkout line and, and another customer was very excited and tweeted that I was there. And, and I, I was, I was very unfit to be photographed. It was late at night. I had to get something for the house. And um, so I wasn't really up for a selfie, but I, I don't want to be rude to the person for whom this is something that's meaningful to them. So it can, it can be, uh, you know, the times can be challenging if someone is asking for a selfie. You know, 99% of the time, for me at least, it's no problem. I'm very happy to take a photo with people. Uh, there's just the occasional time where I, I kind of look uh, like a mess and I'd rather rather not have that uh, documented. 866-893-5722. That's 866 893 
5722. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. And uh, some of you uh, public figure folks who are, are friends of mine, I would love to have you call in and share how you deal with this. 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Nancy in Sherman Oaks, good to have you with us. Nancy, what are your thoughts on this? How is it best to deal with this? So uh, my perspective is a little different. I actually work for a few different celebrities as a personal assistant. And I used to see it as when I saw someone out at the grocery store or, you know, just walking around, I would say, oh, as a fan, you kind of, Oh, to oh, it's to your fans, you know, to say hello or to take a picture. But now working with celebrities, I, I have a different perspective because sometimes they just don't want to be bothered. You know, they're living their lives, they're with their children, um, and I see that now. I've been a few times with some of them, and people will shove a phone in their face, and they're with their kids, and they say, you know, I, I can't, I'm with my family, and I see that now. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's such a delicate thing. And you never know if the person, as you're saying, is out with their family and they may be diff- dealing with, you know, a, a difficult conversation. They may be in the uh, middle of, of uh, working on a disciplinary issue with the kid. And, and so to have a protracted uh, conversation with someone else who they don't know may be a difficult thing to carry out. So, Nancy, I think you, you laid it out beautifully. It's um, it's hard to make hard and fast rules about it that are really going to be applicable in all circumstances. 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Allison in Westwood, how do you handle this? Allison, are you there? Sounds like we got a phone line with her, but I'm not hearing her voice. Allison, are you muted? No? Okay. So let's uh, let's talk with Bennett in San Pedro. Nice to have you with us. Bennett, uh, how should we deal with this? Well, I used to do political fundraising. If I wanted to meet a celebrity who was at an event, I would um, introduce someone else to them. And invariably, they would either think I must, they must know me or I must be someone, and they would talk to me for a while. Yeah, and and uh, so just um, how, how do you do that approach? Would, is there something that um, you might say um, as a part of that introduction? Sure, I would say Daphne. I'd like you. I'd like you to meet, or you should meet. Um, I did this. I remember doing with Daphne Zuniga when she was in Momo's place at Roger Clinton, um, and some other people just say, "Hey, I'd like you to meet so and so," and they assume uh, they hi, and then they assume they met you at some point. Yeah, well, I have to say, yeah, it's a, yeah. When you meet a lot of people, you don't you don't usually remember who all the people that you've met. That's a fairly safe approach, Bennett. Is just act like, well, of course you've met before, Bennett. Thanks very much. Eight six six eight nine three five seven two two, or email us at atcomments at las dot com. Please include your location and first name, atcomments at las.com, or you can uh, call us at 866 893 5722.
1-800-242-8222. Robin and Hermosa Beach said, I had an opportunity to approach Donna Summer. I have never approached a celebrity on the street, but I felt such an emotional connection with her. I approached her very gently to let her know that she kept me on the dance floor for 10 years. Robin, I hope that goes well. I don't know what the upshot of that is, but hopefully that was a very warm and 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 appreciative response. You know, I think I think people generally are gratified to know that what they do has a positive effect on people. That that I mean that's that's a very emotionally rewarding thing to have someone tell you that the work you do is meaningful for them, that it matters in their life, that they look forward to hearing or seeing or being in the presence when you do the thing that you do. 866-893-5722 or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Donna, in Pasadena, nice to have you with us. What do you think the best way is to approach someone you admire? Well, I've spent my entire life in Los Angeles, and I've met many celebrities. And sometimes if you look at them and they look at you and they acknowledge you know who they are, and they look like they're receptive, then I will approach them. If they don't look receptive, then I tend to just smile, nod my head, and leave them alone. I give them their privacy. Um, I, if they are receptive, then I thank them for their work and how, tell them how much I've enjoyed it. And I don't go all fanatic about it. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? I won't do a selfie. Uh, I don't like selfies, so that's just not my thing. But sometimes it makes them uncomfortable. So I've seen people do that, and I I just leave it alone. Um, I give them their privacy. I walk on. Uh, I met Ann Lockhart, and I thanked her so much for her work. I really enjoyed her uh, on television, and she just looked at me and said, Wow, nobody's ever thanked me for my work before. <laughs> Donna, yeah. I, I appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you so much. I had a funny experience. I was sitting in a box at the Hollywood Bowl with the famed music producer and musician Don Was of Was Not Was, head of Blue Note Records. And uh, so, you know, we got to talking in the box, um, you know, between us. And he was with... Um, the producer of the the Grammy Awards and some other folks. And I said, Don, I just want you to know, I love the the show that you do on Sirius XM uh, at the Blue Note Hour, where you talk about and play jazz music. And he said, you are the first person to ever tell me that they listened to that show and appreciate it. He since ended the program, but I was shocked because I loved the show. I thought it was so great. Um, but it's so funny to me that no one had ever come up to him, told him how much they enjoyed that radio show. We'll come back. We'll continue our conversation. We have plenty of listener calls. And actor Virginia Madsen, a friend of mine, has shared her thoughts. I was hoping Virginia would weigh in um, because I was actually at lunch with her when someone recognized her and came over. Uh, It's 866-893-5722. We'll be back in a minute. How do you approach a public figure whose work you admire, or do you approach? And 
you know, one of the concerns has to be if if you're greeted uh, in a way that's hostile uh, or ignored, you know, can change the opinion that you have about the person that you've admired. So it's not exactly risk-free when you do it. So Virginia Madsen in Hollywood emailed, since I don't work on stage, when someone approaches me to acknowledge my work, I consider it a time to take a bow. But I'm very careful in regard to my personal safety. When approaching, people might consider how that would feel. So take it easy. Be polite. Manners go a long way. Thank you for that, Virginia. As I was saying before the break, I I was out uh, to lunch with uh, her and her husband, Nick, and we were at a restaurant, and um, there were a couple women at the table next to us, and they came up and just wanted to tell her how much they appreciated her work. It was very, it was very sweet, and uh, Virginia was just so gracious in receiving it, and it, it was very nice, a very nice human interaction. I'm sure she gets that all the time. But it was just, it's very nice to see. 866-893-5722. Um, when I was out to dinner recently with my wife, a, a woman came over and, and introduced, but she almost left immediately. It's like I said very nice things and then started to turn on her heels and go, I said, wait, wait, wait. She so didn't want to be intrusive, she forgot to say her name. And and I just wanted to know her name and to thank her for the kind words and, and let her know I appreciated her listening to the program. So she was being so cautious of not interrupting, I actually had to call her back. 866-893-5722. Sherry in Riverside, good to have you with us. Hi. Hi, go right ahead. I rarely approach celebrities. Um, I am a low-level celebrity myself. I hold a couple local titles and beauty pageants, and I've had situations where I'm out in public, not as my title, just as a regular person, and someone happens to meet me at the farmer's market that I know lives eight hours away, and they continue to do that. Several of the girls in the pageant system that I'm involved in have had stalkers. Mm. Um, we had a gentleman that was showing up at our uh, places of business, and later he was arrested for homicide. So wow. um, <clears throat> I'm sure they, you know, bigger celebrities have bigger problems, and it's it's a concern of safety. Yeah, yeah. No, understandably, understandably. And, and um, having a stalker, I can't imagine how... Um, how disquieting that experience has to be. Sherry, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, let's talk with Jeffrey in Beverly Hills. I always appreciate Jeffrey joining us. Uh, Jeffrey, what's your experience with this? Yes, um, I've had uh, encounters with uh, actors uh, and have shared with them the fact that um, as a high school English teacher, uh, I have exposed my classes to their work through film, and uh, on one occasion, Sidney Poitier, uh, to tell him that uh, the class was uh, engaged in watching uh, his performance in uh, Raising in the Sun, and on another occasion, Suzanne Pochette, to tell her that it was her photograph, not that of uh, Anne Bancroft, which appeared in one of our texts of The Miracle Worker, and she was uh, doubly complimented. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, but the, the fact that uh, I'm approaching not just as an individual admirer, but as one who is um, uh, um, uh, cultivating a, a larger audience and of young people who will be the future admirers and audience yeah. of 
that individual. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate it, Jeffrey. Emily in Pasadena said, I went into an elevator. Pau Gasol was there. I froze and said, oh, my gosh, I love you. He said, thank you. It was a very awkward elevator, right, Emily? Thank you so much. So many wonderful comments I'm reading, such as Janet and Culver City. Uh, thanks so much. Why do Andy Richter and Fresh Air's Tanya Mosley love what they love? And who will prevail in a live quiz show? Are you ready to have a good time? Go Fact Yourself is back live at the Crawford. Join hosts J. Keith Van Stratton and Helen Hong for a night of trivia and super secret surprise guests in this live taping of the Quiz Show podcast. It's March 23rd. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. It's Hair Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. So great to have you with us today. I want to start the hour by thanking the wonderful production team that brings you this program each and every day. Incredibly dedicated. Led by Matt D'Angelo Antonio, our senior producer. Our producers are Lindsay Wright, Lucy Kopp, Manny Valladares, and Michael Goldsmith. Our apprentice news clerks are Tamar Fagan and Jason Rodriguez. Our technical director, who engineers our program each and every day, Evelyn Bocanegra, and we had help this week from Sean Campbell. My thanks to them, the best team in the business. Incredible. Just a wonderfully talented and dedicated group of people. We turn our attention now to a presidential election of tremendous importance to one of our communities right here in Southern California, and that is the Guatemalan-American community of Greater L.A. Bernardo Arevalo was sworn in as Guatemala's president earlier this week. There have been months of efforts to try and keep him from taking office. Uh, There were rising tensions right up until the transfer of power. Arevalo arrives in the presidency after winning the election back in August, and he won by a rather comfortable market. But since then, it's been quite a roller coaster ride. Joining us to talk about the events leading to the new president being sworn in and what he has promised to bring in his administration is Ader Peralta, international correspondent for NPR. He's based in Mexico City. Ader, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Larry. So, uh, first of all, what what was all the tumult around the new president taking office? Well, look, this, uh, I mean, as you mentioned, this is months in the making. And, um, you know, essentially, Bernardo Arevalo uh, was born out of an anti-corruption movement. He was uh, born out of a university movement. And that... Uh, really threatened the political elite in Guatemala. Um, you know, they 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 believe Arevalo ran on an anti-corruption campaign. And so, you know, they're worried that if he took office, um, he would maybe try to put them in jail for, for some of the corruption that they have committed. And so they tried their best uh, for months since he won the election in a landslide, uh, in summer uh, to try to stop him from getting to office. And that included all kinds of legal maneuvers and included uh, threats to put him in jail. Um, And then at the last minute, uh, the old Congress was trying to stop the new Congress from taking office to try and delay uh, Arevalo's uh, 
swearing in ceremony and you know through different types of legal maneuvers through like actual like you know vocal fights in congress um they delayed it almost until midnight uh the the swearing in ceremony started just before midnight <laughs> arevalo was sworn in after midnight and you know people were out on the streets this whole time they were out in front of congress you know shouting telling congress to respect the will of the people um i mean they made it right up to the door of congress and eventually arevalo was sworn in and at around three o'clock in the morning he appeared uh in front of, of a massive crowd in in guatemala city's main square um and it, you know the people there took it as a as a major victory for democracy you know months before this election in 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 it, it, this summer right i was there and all i heard was desolation people had given up on democracy they thought that the game was rigged they thought that they would get you know a, a president who wouldn't listen to them and all of that changed uh you know uh, i i spoke to one analyst who called it a civic miracle mm. what happened in guatemala um and it changed it it changed you know, over months, and it changed uh, this past weekend. We'll find out more about what Arevalo uh, says he's going to bring to his presidency and why he has been uh, such a lightning rod uh, for those uh, holding power previously in Guatemala. Uh, we're talking with uh, Ader Peralta, international correspondent for NPR, and also joining us from Guatemala City, Edgar Ortiz Romero, who is constitutional law expert at the Free Freedom and Development Foundation, where he directs legal studies. Thank you very much, uh, Edgar. We appreciate you being with us. Uh, share with us just what the response is among the populace. What is it like in Guatemala City? Thanks for having me. Uh, well, I think in, in Guatemala, there's a lot of hope, high expectations for uh, what the Arevalo government can do in office. Um, as Ader mentioned before, um, it, January 14, the day of the inauguration, was a <laughs> there was a hard and difficult day for for Arevalo. Um, uh, we we managed to get a ruling by the Constitutional Court, along with other lawyers, to guarantee the inauguration of Arevalo, since there there were many many legal threats against that. So um, even even with that ruling in place. Uh, on January 15, the 14, the con the old Congress uh, was trying to uh, make some maneuvers, some final maneuvers to prevent his uh, his inauguration. But finally, he he managed to to get it. Why were uh, they so aligned against him? What is it they fear about his leadership? Well, since Arevalo was uh, an opposition leader, um, big part of the political elite was uh, and still is. Uh, worried that they will lose privileges, then they will lose uh, tons of money. Uh, you know, the executive branch controls the money, the the, the budget. So um, they were used to have uh, an ally for corruption in the executive branch, and they fear that this time things are going to be different. And to what extent is corruption within the Guatemalan government a, a serious problem, and how deep does it appear to go? within office holders in the country? Well, yesterday, the U.S. sanctioned former President Alejandro Yamate. President Yamate uh, was the president until January 14. 
they also apply the global Magnitsky Act, which is serious uh, to the romantic partner of Yamate. And uh, also the attorney general is sanctioned by the US and another 48 public officials. So th there's, a, there's a big deal about corruption in Guatemala, especially in the judicial and uh, the attorney general's office. And, um, you know, organized crime and drug trafficking are also involved in this uh, in this combo, uh, especially through illegal funding of political campaigns. I'd love to hear from AirTalk listeners who are of Guatemalan background. If you have family members that are there, I'd be interested in hearing what your conversations have been with them about the presidential election. We're at 866-893-5722. What your conversations uh, with them have been about, uh, finally, the swearing in of new President Bernardo Arevalo uh, to office just a few days ago. 866 893 I'm interested in hearing your thoughts if you are Guatemalan-American living here in Southern California. Uh, Ader, what has he said specifically he's going to do to root out corruption? Well, look, he um, he has essentially said that, you know, his uh, how he's naming his cabinet, right? I mean, this is corruption in Guatemala is... It, it, in some ways, the way we think of it um, in the United States doesn't apply. I mean, this is corruption in which millions of dollars goes missing during the COVID crisis, right? That should have gone toward building hospitals, that should have gone toward uh, toward treating people, and it literally just goes missing, right? And so what Arevalo uh, has promised is to is to go after people who are corrupt and then also to to appoint people who will not be corrupt. Um, you know, he he, for example, one of the first acts uh, that he did was was ask, ask for the resignation of uh, the attorney of the country's attorney general um, uh, who 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 have tried to keep him out of office and who many see as corrupt, who's sanctioned by the United States. Um, he doesn't have the ability to remove her, uh, so he's asked for her resignation. Uh, you know, he 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 has also uh, fired some of the leaders uh, of some of the other uh, uh, big uh, government entities, um, and so and and so that's uh, what he has promised. He has promised that 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 his people, that he will not steal. Um, and I know, that, you know, that sounds very simple, but but in Guatemala, that's very difficult. Mm. He's, he's being portrayed as uh, far left. What, what seem to be his politics based on causes that he's taken up and and statements that he's made in the past? Where, where would you put him politically? I, you know, I think uh, he's portrayed far left by his critics. I, I don't think there's anything far left in him. Um, I mean, you know, Guatemala is a very conservative country. Uh, so so anything, you know, a little left of hard right is seen as far left. But, but I think um, one of the reasons that he is portrayed as far left is that he has led uh, an unusual coalition in Guatemala. Um, not, not, not that it hasn't happened before, but it's unusual in that um, what what he has united is he has united a sort of progressive left young urban population with the massive rural indigenous population. And, um, you know, what, what we've seen 
since he took power is he acknowledged uh, the indigenous population, which is about 50% of that country. Um, he One of the first things he did after being sworn in is he went to visit uh, the indigenous uh, people who had been holding uh, a protest for more than 100 days, who had been taken, who had taken to the streets to try to protect uh, their, their vote and who are, you know, in a lot of ways responsible for Arevalo ultimately being able to take uh, to take office, and so I, I think part of the reason that he's seen as left is, is that he um, acknowledges that Guatemala is a hugely unequal society. He acknowledges that the indigenous populations, which again make up about fifty percent of that country, uh, have been disadvantaged, have been marginalized mm. for a long time, and and that's why he's portrayed a, as left. We're talking with. Peter Peralta, NPR international correspondent based in Mexico City, and Edgar Ortiz Romero of the Freedom and Development Foundation, a think tank based in Guatemala City. Uh, Edgar is the director of legal studies there and a constitutional law expert. Edgar, can you uh, uh, elaborate a bit about the representation of indigenous Guatemalans in the government? Are they very well represented uh, at, at any level of national government? Well, not specially. I mean, in Congress, uh, there are a few members. I mean, representing the indigenous populations. Actually, one of one of them uh, in the in the board of uh, of Congress uh, um, represented by Semia, but th that's only one. Uh, and in the executive branch, that was something that Arevalo, the president Arevalo, uh, uh, mentioned during his uh, during his presentation of the cabinet. He didn't appoint any only one member of the indigenous population in the cabinet. And we are talking about 14 minutes, 14 posts. Uh, so, well, there, Arevalo mentioned that they have, a, they recognize a historical debt on the indigenous populations and that he will make efforts to include uh, more members of the indigenous community in other posts uh, and other public offices. But um, so far, uh, the representation of indigenous population in, in you know, in high-profile posts is very scarce. What about resources to heavily indigenous parts of Guatemala? Is this something he's talked specifically about, reallocating resources towards largely indigenous communities? He hasn't been explicit about it, but I think uh, he will do it when time comes. Um, let's not forget that Guatemala is, you know, uh, is different from the U.S. We are a unitary government. We we don't we are a, a central a centralistic government. So um, the the every department depends directly to the executive branch, and um, in those local governments, uh, indigenous populations have a representation in a in a sort of council. So we uh, people expect that Arevalo will give a, a more voice to indigenous populations, especially in regions where they are a, a majority. I want to thank you both for being with us and describing a pretty dramatic political change in Guatemala with the swearing-in recently of new President Bernardo Arevalo. Also, my thanks to Edgar Ortiz Romero of the Freedom and Development Foundation based in Guatemala City and NPR's own international correspondent. You hear him regularly on Morning Edition and All Things Considered, Ader Peralta. It's Air Talk on LA, 89.3. Coming up... 
We'll take a look at the Wall Street Journal's in-depth piece uh, looking at Boeing suppliers and how reliant the company, as well as other aircraft companies, have become on uh, many different countries supplying the parts that then are assembled at Boeing factories. We'll talk about how that relates to some of the recent quality control problems Boeing has had when we come back in just one minute. As we all know, it was a very harrowing experience for the passengers aboard an Alaska Airlines jet, which suffered a door plug blowout in flight on January 5th. The jet was en route from Portland to Ontario Airport here in Southern California. About a half hour after departure, it was forced to turn around when the cabin decompressed, and fortunately, there weren't injuries. Uh, none less a harrowing experience for those who were aboard. It's the latest example of, of a problem Boeing has had with quality control, and there's still much going on with the investigation to determine why that door plug gave out and, and there was the large hole in the fuselage of the jet. But a new Wall Street Journal piece looks at concerns within Boeing going back a couple of decades about the increasing reliance on uh, contract companies to uh, put together some of the components of the jets that then would be finished in the uh, construction at Boeing factories. Joining us to talk about the investigation uh, that she's done for the journal is reporter Sharon Turlip, who covers the global aerospace industry and industrial manufacturers for the Wall Street Journal. Sharon, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Glad to be here. Thank you. Let's go back to the Boeing engineers' uh, controversial white paper of 2001, which you begin your story with here. What was the warning that he made in that paper? Sure. Yeah, more than 20 years ago, right? He warned that the danger of relying on outside companies to build critical parts of the airplanes is that the company could lose control over quality um, and that it simply wouldn't be able to enforce the same practices to other companies that it it was able to enforce in its own plants. And what are the advantages to um, whether it's Airbus or Boeing doing this kind of outsourcing? What what sorts of of costs are saved in the process? Sure. I mean, there's there's benefits. So cost is a benefit uh, when you all the overhead that's involved in in building and tooling and and putting together new pieces. So there's cost savings there. Um, there's also the argument that if, if you have three different suppliers providing a part and something goes wrong, you can turn to another supplier. It's called multi-sourcing. Um, and then there's also the idea that, um, you know, Boeing puts together airplanes. So they said, you know, let's focus on final assembly, engineering, putting together airplanes, and and not so much on building wings and fuselages and, and all the all the parts that go into the plane. You write that uh, recently Boeing's been dogged by issues with various models, including misdrilled holes, loose rudder bolts, uh, of course, the door plug blowout on the MAX 9 aircraft, which the company failed to catch. 
are these things that should have been found in the final assembly and inspection process at the Boeing location? And if that's the case, why then is the subcontractor issue such a big one if, if Boeing inspects everything anyway? Sure. Yeah. And I think even Boeing has said, you know, you've heard the CEO come out and say that it really doesn't matter where this problem was introduced. It was our job to make sure that the plane was safe. Um, and and fundamentally, that would be the argument for why contracting is OK, because the, the company itself has to check the product. But the reality is, if if there are more defects or more issues, the more likely it is that something won't get caught. And, and the more that is outsourced to other companies, the less that is in under the control of Boeing itself. What are some of the things that employees of these subcontracted factories are saying about the time pressures uh, that they're involved in to fulfill the contracts with Boeing? Sure. Well, and particularly at this company, it's called Spirit Aerosystems, and they build um, for Boeing's most popular jet. There, they supply the fuselage um, and and some other key parts. And employees there, some employees have described a culture where they're they're just under pressure to produce and to meet quotas and to meet amounts. And um, some say they, you know, that it's it's known there that if you raise too many concerns about quality or processes, that you'll you'll get in in trouble. And so um, they describe a, an, an atmosphere where safety is not the top priority. We're talking with Wall Street Journal reporter Sharon Turlip, whose investigative piece is a detailed look at the subcontracting process that Boeing uses. And as she writes, Boeing's not alone in this. Airbus similarly um, has subcontractors providing parts for its jets. But the concerns about whether Boeing is actually able to give the kind of quality control attention necessary to catch problems that have occurred at subcontractor factories. Uh, Sharon uh, uh, covers the global aerospace industry and industrial manufacturers for the journal. If you have questions for her about this whole process and how the aircraft construction industry works, we're at 866-893-5722-866-893-5722. Or you can email your question to atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Sharon, you were just mentioning the advantage for the construction company, Boeing, uh, in having multiple suppliers that it could turn to if it's not happy with a price hike or or quality issue with one of the subcontractors. But, of course, then the flip side is that can lead to the kinds of pressures you were just detailing workers say they have because they don't want to lose that contract to another company. Company that can that can undercut the price uh, that the sub is paying currently. So how um, how does Boeing try and and you know walk that fine line between getting the best price but making sure that the pace of of um, you know of delivery isn't so high it's causing problems. Sure, and I think there's going to be a lot of discussion about process processes and exactly how that is done. I mean, one thing that Boeing has done and um, at this particular supplier already, Boeing had um, had employees on site and people there that were checking quality. So I think one thing is um, to be, you know, they're, they're very likely they're going to be 
looking at these parts that come from the supplier. They're going to likely, you know, be looking at their quality inspection process to make sure that everything they get is is up to the quality that it that it should be. Can Boeing have a higher profile, more inspections done on site where the subcontractor is doing the parts so that it doesn't put so much final pressure on Boeing inspectors at its own factory later? Correct. And and, and with this particular supplier, Boeing also made a deal last year um, where it would help help this company spirit out financially, give it some support. Uh, so there's it's a very symbiotic relationship. And and this supplier used to be part of Boeing until 2005. It was actually part of the company. So um, this is a case where the two are very dependent on one another. Boeing uh, is Spirit gets most its business from Boeing and Boeing needs these fuselages from Spirit. And And what are observers of the industry telling you about changes that they think Boeing needs to make to avoid these kinds of problems of serious defects in workmanship? I mean, w- one of the key things is to figure out exactly what went wrong in the first place. Um, you know, is this um, a fluke thing that happened at the supplier level? Uh, is this is there a systemic problem that has prevented um factories from being able to ensure the safety of their products. So, and, and so part of the solution depends on what exactly went wrong. Um, but certainly I think um, observers are saying, you know, it's going to be really important to comb through the manufacturing processes, the culture, the, the entire operation to figure out how this kind of thing could have happened. Well, and, and uh, even, Beyond this specific Alaska Air incident, you detailed this is not alone. There are other less publicized, because they weren't uh, disastrous, but less publicized defects that have been found also. So uh, it appears it's more than than just the issue involving, you know, how did these door plugs on these different aircraft end up with, with loose bolts? Yeah, and, and most of these problems um, lately have all been around the the 737. This is the uh, most popular jet that Boeing builds. It carries the most people. It's not a you know it's not a jet that that they want to have problems with. All right. Uh, again, if you have questions for our guest, uh, we're at eight six six eight nine three five seven two two. What role does the FAA play in this process? Yeah, the FAA. Um, the FAA will say when the planes that are, I, sh- I should back up and say the plane, the type of planes that had these door plugs have been grounded. There's about a, 170 of them. And so the FAA will ultimately determine when those planes can fly again. Um, the FAA will play a big role in determining what went wrong. Uh, and then, and then every level of manufacturing goes through the FAA. So, so the agency would certify any new planes. They would have to sign off on on new planes that that go in the air. They would inspect uh, inspect planes as they come off the factory factory lines. So there's a big role here for for air safety regulators. Do we have any sense um, of, of when those 737 Max nine jets that have been grounded for inspections might be allowed to return to service? 
We really don't. I think the the big message out of the FAA, and it's something that Boeing has said it it agrees with, um, is that it's you know it's going to take as long as it takes basically. So they've they've emphasized that they aren't rushing this, and that they want a thorough investigation. I think Boeing, um, you know, has been very um, has has really emphasized that they're not trying to push the process, um, and as have the airlines, although they're the ones who at the moment would be the most affected by grounded planes. Yeah, how is Alaska having sixty five of its planes grounded? Is because uh, being a smaller airline has has this affected their ability to fly their routes? Yeah, I mean, this is something sure surely they'll talk about as earnings come out, um, and and the, they'll be able to measure the impact. Um, but yeah, I mean, it has affected routes. They've tried to shift things around. Alaska's actually it's a much bigger airline than you would than you would think it is. Um, but they so they've been able to work with it, but it has led to um to change flights and delays and and uh def- definitely a, a logistical issue for the company. Sharon, thank you so much. We really appreciate you sharing your expertise and your investigative work in describing Boeing's relationship with its subcontractors and some of the issues that may well be at play with quality control on their aircraft. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sharon Turlip, Wall Street Journal reporter, covers the global aerospace industry and industrial manufacturers. It's Air Talk on LA, it's 89.3. A reminder that tomorrow it's Film Week. We'll hear, we'll hear what the critics have to say about the sci fi thriller ISS, starring Ariana DuBose. We'll also hear about the sci-fi adventure, The Kitchen, and uh, The End We Start From, uh, which is a British uh, thriller starring Jodie Comer. Those and more films coming up on Film Week tomorrow on L.A. at 89.3 at 10. When we come back, we're talking television as we do every uh, Thursday. Our critics are Steve Green and Melanie McFarland. We'll talk with them when we come back in 90 seconds. Hey, it's Brian, the host of How to LA, a podcast that is a love letter to Los Angeles. Independent movie theaters are having a glow up moment. Vidiot's and Eagle Rock, amazing. We have our friends at the American Cinematheque. The Vista just reopened. In our new series, Revival House, we'll take you inside these spots and share their history because movie history is LA history. Listen to Revival House on How to LA wherever you listen to podcasts. Great to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by television critics Melanie McFarland of Salon and Steve Green, freelance TV critic, to talk with us about what's happening on streamers and networks. We begin with the PBS series, All Creatures Great and Small. Its fourth season is underway. Two episodes are out. Uh, The third episode will be airing this Sunday at uh, 9 o'clock Pacific time on PBS stations. Uh, Melanie, please start us off on All Creatures. What do you think of season four? Well, this is one of those shows that is just really a wonderful, um, wonderful excursion every single season it comes on. Um, But I also think that what this season does quite well is keep that um, notion of kind of departing to the Yorkshire Dales. It's, you know, the the cinematography is lovely. It's always a very green place um, and it brings us there in springtime. So we get to see lots of lambs being born and those kinds of things. 
but also it's 1940. So um, in Britain, Britain is now involved in World War II. Um, people are being enlisted. They have also have people being um, conscripted. And so the reality of war is really closer to this, this town than it's been in previous seasons. They've begun to hint at it, but it's hitting home now. And this season we get to see what happens when it actually comes into James Harriet's direct orbit, you know, what happens with his family and, and how people go on in these moments. Um, so it's, it's a beautiful, it's, it's wonderfully responsible in that way, but also it doesn't lose any of the beauty and, you know, the emotional calm that I think that this series brings. It's the comedic drama, All Creatures Great and Small, fourth season on PBS. And for two weeks after each episode's premiere on the PBS network, it streams on the PBS app, Nicholas Ralph stars. Steve, what do you think of this new season of All Creatures? I I think Melanie did a great job of touching on the idea that this is a show that expertly balances the small scale and the large scale. Um, like she mentioned, World War II is on the horizon. Um, but I think something that's that's run through every season of this show is that even if tragedy is sort of happening over the horizon, you still have to live your life. You still have to go through your day-to-day life. There are people that who are counting on you. There are people who love you. And your responsibility is to them as much as it is to considering what is happening in the greater world itself. So uh, I think that the ability to balance both of those, to have something that that has these heavy ideas on its mind but can still be comforting uh, and can still show how these the, the veterinarians who are at the center of the show can help heal the community, uh, I think, is, is, a, is a very sweet thing and, and something I'm glad that we have. Two of the episodes are out. The third airs Sunday night at 9 o'clock on PBS SoCal and each episode available for the following two weeks after its airing on the network. All Creatures Great and Small Season 4 starring Nicholas Ralph, uh, rated TVPG. Death and Other Details, a Hulu streaming uh, crime mystery drama stars Violet Bean and Mandy Patinkin. Heidi Cole McAdams and Mike uh, Weiss are the co-creators of this series. Melanie, please tell us about Death and Other Details. Well, Death and Other Details is definitely one of those shows that feels like it was made up in a lab. (laughs) That is to say, um, we're looking at uh, different trends in TV right now, and particularly for Hulu. Hulu's probably its biggest title right now um, that, that people talk about the most is Only Murders in the Building. Now, that is a very standard kind of whodunit, you know, almost a takeoff in a way of the old Agatha Christie uh, formula for mysteries, right? Um, which, of course, is what Ryan Johnson did with his Knives Out movies. So we ha- that's what we have in Death and Other Details. It's kind of like a little bit of Knives Out, a little bit of Only Murders. And, of course, it really blends in the whole idea of, believe it or not, white, the White Lotus, just in terms of having a number of people who are extremely rich um, on a cruise <laughs> where a murder takes place. And there's definitely some class con- con- uh, conflict and the thing about Rufus Coatsworth, and that's Manny Patinkin's character, he's the former world's greatest detective, um, is that he is both trusted for his ability and has, is known to have lost his touch. And so he teams with uh, Violet Bean's character, Emojane Scott, um, who is both a member of the rich family who is hosting the cruise, but also an orphan because they took her in. So she's not technically a blood member of the family. So. It's that idea of insider versus outsiders that's a bit interesting. However, 
this is also a series that reminds us that we're kind of in this in-between phase, both due to the strike, but also, you know, in, it's a mid-season kind of placeholder. I think it's beautiful to look at. Um, it'll be an interesting enough mystery to kind of hold its place. Um, there are others that are on the air right now that I think are more distinctive, um, true detective. But if you want something light, um, you know, Mike Weiss was on the team that gave us the mentalist. So, you know, it's kind of a light uh, mystery to to enjoy, probably in the background or, you know, you can watch it. It's it's a nice midwinter treat. Death and other details streaming on Hulu. The first two episodes are out. The third releases next Tuesday. There'll be a total of 10 episodes of Death and Other Details rated TV MA. Monsieur Spade is an AMC and AMC Plus streaming series. Uh, Sam Spade, now 60 years of age, living as an expat in the south of France in the early 1960s, starring Clive Owen, Scott Frank, and Tom Fontana, the creators of the series. Steve? Yeah, this is uh, another example of telling the story of Sam Spade, uh, the Dashiell Hammett detective. Um, I, I think even though it does take place in the early 1960s, there is a sense that the show is kind of unstuck in time a little bit, as Sam Spade is himself. He's an expat. He's living in France. He's constantly being reminded that he's an outsider, that he is not sort of from this area. Uh, this isn't as much of a fish-out-of-water story as, like, Philip Marlowe in The Long Goodbye. Um, but he is sort of being reminded of a lot of the tragedy of his past. And when a horrific crime happens, he realizes that people in his life have a closer connection to it than he may have realized. Um, and so this isn't – this, even though this is centered around Sam Spade, this isn't a – uh, a classic noir. Um, if anything, you know, he has these quippy one-liners that almost feel more like a coping mechanism than than like something to build the show around. Um, so even though there is sort of this thorn thorny murder plot underneath everything, um, this is more of a character study and, and more of an atmospheric exercise in, in what a Sam Spade story looks like. The first episode is out. The second is uh, releasing this Sunday at 6 o'clock. There will be a total of six episodes airing on AMC Network and streaming on AMC+. Plus. Monsieur Spade is the series. Season two of Reacher is the story of Jack Reacher continues with Alan Richson starring with Sarinda Swan. Melanie, please tell us about the second season. So one thing that I'll say that Reacher does incredibly well is interpret Lee Child's character. Um, the second season is based on his book, Bad Luck and Other, Other Trouble. Um, and the main thing to know, even if you've never read his books, is that Reacher is a gigantic man. <laughs> this is important to know because this is very much an action series. So if you are not a big fan of action movies, and when I say that, I'm really talking about the types of action movies that we're kind of in the 80s and 90s with the muscle men mold. It's a blend of that with kind of the modern procedural. And the way that Alan Richen plays the, plays the character is that he's very smart. He's a smart, quiet man um, that also seems to just go into trouble and it crashes against him. <laughs> so um, this series is wonderful if you enjoy action. And I think this particular season has a bit of a Magnificent Seven vibe to it in that mm. He is going up against um, a large, uh, you know, a large group of villains, well-funded by a corporation, um, and he's doing it with his old army buddies. Um, his unit is slowly being killed off. Um, so it it turns out very well, and it's also, you know, a quick kind of lively but very violent action series. Quite good. 
Reacher in its second season on Amazon Prime Video starring Alan Richson. Nick Santora is the creator of this series. It's rated TVMA. Uh, and we have the uh, season finale that's just been released today. That's the eighth and final episode of season two. So if you catch that, you can see all eight of the episodes of the second season with the release of the final one today. Detective Forced uh, is a Polish crime drama streaming on Netflix. Steve? Yeah, I I feel like I could describe this show and it would sound like your standard off-the-rack detective show. Uh, A body appears, um, a renegade detective goes off book, he's juggling lovers past and present, Um, he finds out that the the mystery behind the murder goes to even higher places than he could possibly realize. Um, But I feel like when you have a familiar story told with confidence and a certain amount of visual flair, it does kind of paper over that familiarity. Um, And I think I I can't imagine that the show being released right now is any coincidence. It does make a very interesting companion piece to the most recent season of True Detective, like Melanie mentioned earlier. Um, They they both take advantage of their setting in a uh, in a really interesting way. The 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 environment uh, is a fundamental part of this, especially when you're dealing with stories of violence and what happens to a community. Um, it, it's th- this uh, Detective Force show is also set in a snowy, isolated part of Poland, so you you get that uh, comparison as well. Um, and uh, and and weirdly, like all creatures great and small, uh, it knows when to pull back and show you these giant wide shot landscapes that show you exactly where you are and and how to feel within them. And I assume the series is in Polish with English subtitles. Correct. Is that Correct. Right? Yes. Yes. We're talking about Detective Forest, which is based on a series of books, uh, very popular with the character. Uh, the series stars Boris Sik. Uh, it's rated TVMA. All six episodes are streaming on Netflix, Detective Forced. When we come back, we'll talk about the Emmy Awards that were given out earlier this week and uh, how three shows were dominant in multiple categories. We'll hear from our critics series that they would have liked to have seen uh, get some sorts of honors uh, at Emmy night. That's when we come back. It's our TV segment every Thursday here on Air Talk. Back in a minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Every Thursday, we bring together a pair of noted critics for television to find out what their picks are on network and streaming. Joining us today are Steve Green and Melanie McFarland of Salon. We've been talking with them about what's out this week, but I, I want to take a look at the Emmy winners of the 75th Emmy Awards that were handed out on Monday night. The big winners uh, in the comedy category, The Bear, which is uh, streams on Hulu, Succession on HBO and Max, which uh, swept in drama, and limited series Beef, uh, which is on Netflix. Melanie, your, your thoughts about this, and do you think there being three such head and shoulders above everyone else winners has left out some very worthy series that should have received more due? Well, that's a question, right? I mean, every single year there's always going to be, you know, certain series that are kind of preordained to, you know, be in these top categories and probably win them. Succession got so much light and so much heat in the first in the final season that 
you know, it was almost a guarantee that it was going to get best drama. Um, and the bear was extraordinary. You know, this is for the first season, this Emmy, by the way. And the second season, I think, was even was better. Was even better. Yes. Yeah, so they've already won yes. for the first season. Now, that's the thing about Emmy is that, you know, there's a lot of this this season, there were a lot of great nominees. Um, the unfortunate aspect of this is that a show like Better Call Saul, which also, you know, this was its last chance to get an Emmy and it was nominated many times and has never gotten has never gotten anything that meant that, you know, Ray Seahorn, who did an excellent job and Bob Odenkirk you know, did not see Emmys for their work. Um, Barry's final season, um, Barry was in, a, in the comedy category. Um, Barry's final season was all the episodes were directed by its star, Bill Hader. Um, Henry Winkler did some amazing work. Um, and lots of people talked about how creative um, Hader's vision was, did not run anything. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that's just kind of the heartbreak of these award shows is that there are certain shows that are going to do quite well and you know i have no problem with uh with succession winning best drama i don't have a problem with the bear winning an emmy but there's also the question of is the bear a comedy right <laughs> i mean most people say like this is not a comedy but i would not want to see it go up against succession so it's this um you know it's it's kind of looking at these choices and making your peace with them these were great awards and this was also a very historic night more people of color winning in major categories you got to see elton john egot so there's a lot to be happy about um and then there's the usual quibbles yeah, I mean the ratings were were disastrous, but uh, for those that saw it, there was there was certainly a lot to see, including paying tribute to classic television series and bringing back many people from those shows. Uh, Steve, what what do what do you think about uh, the honors and did the Academy get it right? Um, I like Melanie said. I mean, I think a lot of these did feel preordained. So I, I think in some ways that did help what you're mentioning about the ceremony itself uh, take advantage of the opportunity of, of hey, in some cases we're recognizing shows with seasons that premiered 18 months ago. <laughs> uh, so it, I, I do appreciate the way that they took a page out of the Tony Awards playbook of, of especially with film and TV award shows, you can't fundamentally have people live performing the thing that you're being celebrated for. But the next closest thing is to make it a a celebration of the history of the medium itself. And you know, TV doesn't have the century-long advantage that the Oscars does. Um, but what they do have is our living legends that they can bring back and and make it a passing the torch feel between past and present. And that is something that I really hope that the Emmys can uh, can really keep alive going forward, especially if we have you know, that the bear is going to be eligible again uh, this year. So if that that sweep is going to happen, it would be nice to have a ceremony that 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 invigorates that. I, I wish there was a way too of of not just honoring one outstanding series, but you know, in these categories, there were so many great shows. If there were other ways, and I don't know how you do it without making such a bloated program that it would be unwatchable, but but to recognize some of the other uh, terrific things, like Only Murders in the Building. I felt like their third season, and I know they were nominated, was the best season that they've done yet because that trio that heads that show, I think, has gotten better together as they've had more time. Uh, you know, Selena Gomez, I think the chemistry is significantly improved between the three of them on that series. But you can't, I mean, the bear is just, it. it's a phenomenon. And you look at the, um, I, I think, 
indicative of the Emmy ceremonies and where it is now, you look at the supporting actress and actor in a drama series, and it's essentially only nominees from two different HBO shows. Uh, and mm-hmm. and I, I, I think if you're going to look at how to make the ceremony a more spreading the wealth uh, exercise, I think you need to look at the nominations process and make sure that you have a pool that you're drawing from that isn't just from uh, a handful of the same shows. Yeah, I do want to talk a bit about Beef because it's set in Los Angeles and great for us to talk about a a series that is set locally. Uh, Melanie, for those who haven't had a chance to see it, it's it's a limited series. Um, We've reviewed it on the program, but just describe again, if you will, the premise of Beef and what makes it so uh, effective? Mm -hmm. Well, Beef really gets to a very core concept that I think a lot of people are either relating to or experiencing right now, which is rage. Um, It starts with a road rage incident between two people who do not know each other. You get to see the circumstances of their lives, everything that they are frustrated with, and they just begin taking out their, they they take this rage that other people have been, you know, stewing in them and then directing, directed at them toward each other. And it is, again, something um, that's related to class con- conflict because Ali Wong's character is a wealthy woman who's an influencer and is about to get a massive cash influx from um from a, a cap a venture capitalist who's going to stake her. And then Stephen Young is a struggling contractor, you know, who happens to be, you know, the, in the wrong place at the wrong time when she has a bad day. Um, they nearly back into each other or get into a, an accident in a parking lot and then they go into a highway chase. Um, so those kinds of things, the spread out of that and the, you know, the escalation of conflict that eventually finds resolution, I think is the way that they handled it is both relatable, but also there's a strange comedy and artistry to it. Um, And it's all about both the circumstances and the performance. And I think that's what makes it an extraordinary limited series. Other great, there were other great series there too. I mean, you had Fleischman is in Trouble was also nominated in that category. I don't think uh, Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story was necessarily a great series, but it definitely, evoked a lot of discussion. Um, but out, you know, in, in that category, I think beef was far and away um, the best choice. Um, when you start to get into the individual categories, that's where those questions that we just had come in. We have all these wonderful performances. Um, but again, if you look at those, there there's a pretty clear winner just in terms of what Stephen Yun and Ali Wong did with these characters that were so complex. Well, and and you know, I've read um, um, critic response to to Beef, where some have said there's some episodes didn't quite work or weren't quite as believable as others. But it's such an ambitious undertaking, tonally what they did, that you want to reward that, even if it's not 100% successful in every tone it attempts to inhabit in the series. Hey, thank you both so much, as always. Really appreciate it. Have a great rest of your week. Thanks thank, so much. Thank you, Larry. Thank you. Thanks. Joined by Melanie McFarland, TV critic for Salon, and Steve Green, freelance TV critic, joining us as well. Stay tuned. Coming up next, NPR's Hero. And now they're going to continue with their coverage looking at the Guatemalan uh, new president coming into office that we talked about at the beginning of this hour on Air Talk. Austin Cross is in hosting the first hour of Air Talk at 9 tomorrow. I'll be along at 10 o'clock with Film Week with our critics. A lot of movies to talk about. Have a great day.